following message is presented by Community Gospel Church in Bremen, Indiana. It is our great privilege to share this ministry with you. We in no way intend for this to be a replacement for the local church. It is our prayer that this would serve as a resource to help make Jesus Christ known in our congregation and other congregations gathering across the world. For more information about Community Gospel Church, visit www.communitygospelchurch.com. Would you open up your Bibles to the book of Habakkuk? We're going to be in Habakkuk, uh, the last part of chapter 2, and then uh, we're, I believe we're in the second half of it, yeah, in, uh, in chapter 2. It's kind of one of these weird Sundays where I got like a thousand things going on in my mind because there's so much in the text, so I'm just really praying that we hit it all um, and, and we don't do it a disservice. Um, we're going to talk about the five woes of God this morning that come out of the text in Habakkuk chapter 2. We're going to start actually at verse 6, and we're going to work kind of the, the, the rest of the way through the chapter. <clears throat> now, when we use the word woe, I want you to think for a second as you're turning in your text, when is the last time that you said woe? Now, there's two spots that it happens in my life. Uh, it, it's usually in a vehicle, right? Uh, Bethany will say it when I'm driving. <laughs> She'll go, whoa, and she has a spot on the vehicle that she grabs as if it's safer than the other parts of the vehicle, right? Like there's, so she will grab hold of that little thing on the top of her thing, and she'll go, whoa, whoa, Jor- Jordan, whoa! And, uh, and I will say, what do we say, guys? I got, I got this. I got this. Sit, calm down, right? Calm down. Someday, when we get to heaven, God is going to hand Bethany the microphone and go, okay, go nuts. Have at him. That's what's going to happen. Now, the other, the other time that this happens is, I don't know if you guys know this or not, but I'm a reserve officer with the Bremen Police Department, and there's some officers who are here today, and I say it in their vehicles because they will flip on somebody usually um, when I'm riding next to them, and they pull somebody over, their, their radar I'm not giving away any secrets here, by the way, okay? So their radar um, will clock a vehicle, and I'll be, like, paying attention to everything else but what they're doing, right? I'm a good cop. And, uh, <laughs> and without warning, you'll hear the supercharger in the car go, and all of a sudden they'll turn, like, on the highway, and I'll go, whoa, whoa, <laughs> right? And they look at me like it's funny. You, you laugh, but they think it's hilarious, all right? So I don't know about you and the last time you said whoa, but it happens frequently in my life, and it happens in the Bible too as well. We're going to talk from the book of Habakkuk about the five woes of God. Habakkuk is a prophet. Now, there's no distinction essentially from the major and the minor prophets in the Bible except for the length of their books, okay? So when you look at the Old Testament, you're going to see the first five books of the Bible. Pay attention. It might be on a trivia question someday, all right, called the Pentateuch or the Law, which is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Then we get into the history excuse me, of Israel or the Jews, if they did what God wanted them to do or they didn't do what God wanted them to do. You got some wisdom uh, literature in there. It flows into these things called major and minor prophets. Major prophets, their books are a lot longer than the minor prophets, but they speak about similar things. What do they talk about? They talk about that God's judgment is coming on those people who fail to repent Mostly they're talking about the people in the nations that they're present in, but it extends broader into our culture as well. 
And so the major and minor prophets are going to speak on the fact that you need to repent and God's judgment is near. The prophets, major or minor, would essentially tell the people, whoa, hold on a second, pause or yield, because God is going to do a great work in the lives of people who follow after him, and he's going to do a great work, on the other hand, of people who reject him. So just as there is grace with a God who loves people and wants to have them come into a relationship with him when we confess and believe that he alone is Lord, so also that same God is storing up his wrath for the people who choose to reject him. It's been said that God is kind of like this. He has his hand open and welcoming anybody who so chooses to repent of the fact that they're a sinner and says, here, I want you into my family with one hand, but the other hand is up like this, and he is holding back his wrath. And there will come a point in time to where God's hands will drop, to where that welcoming of people who are lost will no longer be allowed. He says, I've given you adequate amount of time to repent of yourself and come into a relationship with me. And he says, if you've done that, then you can come into my rest, essentially. But he says, this hand drops too, and you have welcomed my wrath. And so the same God that we love and that we treasure as being gracious is the same God of wrath too as well. And we can't just kind of pick and choose which attributes of God we love and accept. All of those are true with him. And Habakkuk knows this. And Habakkuk is a prophet whose name means loves embrace. He loves the people who are present in the day. And he also loves his God. In the first chapter, Habakkuk asked two questions to God. He actually asked three altogether. But the first two was, First of all, God, why don't you listen to me when I pray? Anybody ever been that? Don't raise your hands, right? Everybody, I got this. I know the answer to this question. Okay. He says, why do you not hear me when I pray? He says, what's the delay in this? Why are you not listening to me? That's his first question. Second question, he says, is there no justice in this world, right? Is there no justice that's taking place because of the people who've been disobedient to you and to your word? That's what Habakkuk wants to know, and God answers him, as he always does. He says, first of all, Habakkuk, I listen to everything you say, right? I know you. I know the hairs on your head. I know uh, what you had for dinner last night. I know exactly about your life and the fact that you love me and you love these people. And he says, justice comes in my time. And the crazy thing in Habakkuk chapter 1 that we learned, and I love this verse, he says, I'm doing a work in you, and if I were to tell you, you wouldn't understand it, right? He says, you would have no idea. He says, it would blow your mind if I were to tell you. And then in the second part of that chapter, he says, Habakkuk asks another question, and God answers him again, and they kind of have this dialogue back and forth about what's going on. Now, God is going to, in chapter 2, the part that we're looking at, he's going to essentially give Habakkuk kind of what he needs in regards to his ammunition for the people in his time period, but that meaning is going to extend to people in our time period. So it's a heavy sermon because a lot of times we look at ourselves as we're doing okay, and Habakkuk wants us to check ourselves a little bit to make sure that we don't fall into these five categories. It's a heavy sermon, so I'm going to pray. God, your word, not mine. I pray that you would present this text in a way that we understand because some of the verses are challenging and some of the verses don't make sense to us because they were written so long ago. But we believe because we've accepted you as Lord and Savior that you've given us the Holy Spirit, your gift to us to help us understand these truths. And you can speak in ways that I can't. And so would you whisper in the hearts of the people who are gathered here today and teach all of us, not just them, but me as well, 
as we look at this text and apply it to our lives, we gain an understanding of what was happening in Habakkuk's day, but then we gain an application of what we're supposed to do with it in our day. We love you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Okay, so let's look at this. Habakkuk chapter uh, 2, and we're going to start in verse 6. Shall not, I'm going to give you lots of words here today, okay? Shall not these, you could circle the word these. He's talking about those who feared Babylon. Who is Babylon? Babylon is the Chaldeans, the most violent people that existed in this time period. They were horrendous. They were ruthless. They were reckless. All they wanted to do was kill, steal, and destroy. They were essentially Satan that was on earth. I mean, that's what they lived for, was to kill, to steal, and destroy for their own self. So Habakkuk writes, shall not these, I circled that in my Bible, and I wrote above it, those that feared Babylon take up their taunts against him. In other words, there would come a day where the people who feared Babylon would be able to speak back to them. That'd be a good time, wouldn't it? Like when God says, essentially, Bethany, you get the microphone now. Jordan has to sit and listen, right? That's exactly what he's saying. Or to your enemies, he would say, she's nodding her head. You guys can't see that. But there's come a time of day where your enemy, your greatest enemy has to sit and you get to just kind of tell them everything that's wrong with them. Would you like that? You guys are contemplating shaking your head because you're in church this morning. That's okay. All right. Can I say that? Against him, circle that, talking about the king of Babylon. We, the people who have been oppressed by the Chaldeans or Babylonians, same word, will be able to take up our taunts, those things that they've done against us to their king, that being the king of Babylon, to him, Verse 6, with scoffing and riddles. He ain't even going to know what we're saying. And here comes the first woe. Woe is a sign of coming judgment. To pause, to stop, to evaluate, to contemplate. You need to stop in your tracks and see that there is coming judgment from God to these people. Okay, Woe to him who heaps up or steals, is another way to say that, what is not his own. For how long will he do that when he loads himself with pledges? Pledges is another word for intimidation. So the first woe is a woe to those who intimidate. And the sole meaning in Habakkuk, in chapter 2, verse 6, is woe to the Chaldeans, the violent Babylonians, who intimidated those people who didn't need it, didn't want it, and didn't deserve it. Ultimately, those people were God's people. And woe to you Chaldeans who push back or intimidate um, God's chosen people. Based off of, little part B to that, and it's not going to be on your screen, is that you have stolen all of these things from them in order to intimidate them. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 6, all the way to 20 can be broken down in threes. So you have six explanations, seven is an illustration, and eight is an application. It carries on through the text. So what he says is, a shout of distress to the Babylonians who steal all of this stuff and use it for intimidation purposes. Verse 7, we're just going to walk through the text today. Will not your debtors, those people who you've done this to, suddenly arise... And those awake who will make you tremble. 
Now, the key word in that text is the word tremble. Some of us think that essentially God is going to come and he's just going to nudge them kind of back on the right path, right? God is a God of grace and love. He says, no, hold on a second. We're talking hurricane gale force winds is the hand of the Lord. This is how he comes. When it says tremble, he's talking about a hurricane-like wind that takes the branches off of trees, And not just small trees, we're talking big trees. He says you should tremble over these things because, verse 8, you have plundered many nations and all the remnant of people shall plunder you. Those people that you intimidated, Babylon, the Chaldeans, they will in turn intimidate you. That's what he says. You should pause for a second and think about this because the people who you oppress will one day press against you. Your king might be seen as a great leader, but what Habakkuk is saying is, you don't know our God, and you don't know the living God and what he is able to do. And so he says to him, look at what happens to you for the blood of man and to the violence of the earth and to the cities and all who dwell in them. Babylon was a bully. And what he is saying is, Woe to you Babylonians who intimidate, and woe to us who do the same thing. Essentially, Habakkuk looks at us and he says, when we become Christians, the context for which we are living in today is, we become Christians and we think we're greater than anybody else, and we're able to do uh, better things than anybody else is. And so what happens is we get kind of these big heads. And if we were to jump back in the book of Proverbs, chapter 22, he says this about it. He says, those people who are like that, in Proverbs chapter 22, he says, I'm looking for verse 8, whoever sows injustice will reap calamity, and the rod of his fury will fall. Whoever sows injustice will reap calamity. Whoever does these things, who oppresses people and intimidates them based off of what they have obtained, woe to that person. Have we done that? I mean, I think about that in my Christian life. Have I done that in a way with people who are present in my everyday life? Have I essentially taken from them so that I can use that as a tool to intimidate them? That's something to really, truly evaluate. If I am using what God has given me just to intimidate others so that they would appear smaller than I am, woe to me and woe to you. That's what he tells Habakkuk. He says our opportunity is to use what God has given us so that we could see the victory that we have because our king is greater than any other king. And so what happens is, he says, you have plundered, verse 8, many nations and all the remnant of the people shall plunder you for the blood of man and violence to the earth to the cities who dwell in them. Be careful, be careful, be careful. Are you an intimidator or are you a welcomer, he says. Do you use what God has given you to intimidate people or do you use what God has given you to leverage that for the gospel of Jesus Christ? I'm reminded of when I was in high school. The statute of limitations has passed on this, by the way. I did the math this morning. And I had buddies, not myself, who would drag race their cars. 
You guys, you guys know what I'm talking about here? All right, maybe you don't. Well, what happened is, and there's some gearheads here who will totally get this. A guy would pull up in a Pinto, and another guy would pull up in a Mustang. They would look at each other, and we call this the glare. This is the intimidation factor. The guy in the Pinto would look over, and for some reason, he wasn't all that intimidated, right? But the guy in the Mustang, and those of you who aren't car people, Mustangs are faster than Pintos, okay? That's the way the world works. But... <clears throat> What happened was, is the guy in the Pinto has done what we call some modifications, right? And so he chose to modify what was under his hood, and his car now can go faster than this guy's car, but this guy doesn't know it. So the guy in the Mustang is looking over at the guy in the Pinto, and he's thinking to himself, I got him beat. This is easy. What's up now? That's what we do. God, do your sort of thing, okay? And the guy in the Pinto is sitting there, and he's thinking to himself, what are you talking about? I got a rocket engine underneath this. Just wait. And so all of a sudden, the person drops the flags, and we're off. Whoa, right? I'm back in my seat, and here goes this little Pinto. And Mustang's like, right here. And all of a sudden, the guys get to the end of the finish line, and they say to themselves, what happened? What did you do to your car? And the guy says, let me show you what's underneath my hood of my Pinto. And he pops it up, and there's a rocket engine sitting underneath of his hood, right? Now, here's the deal about us as Christians. I don't think you understand or what you know what is underneath my hood, because my creator and my king is greater than any other king that exists in this whole entire world. But I don't go sitting there, and I don't go bragging about it, and I don't go telling people how much it can get buried by it. I show them of what it's really like. If you want to see how much power is underneath the hood, you should get in the car, right? Okay, so that's the application of what he's trying to say. Verse 9, second one. <clears throat> Woe, second woe, to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest up high, to be safe uh, from the reach of harm. So here's what's going on in the text. The Babylonians have plundered or stolen all these things in order to intimidate all of these people. And what they wanted to do was they wanted to take all of that resources and they wanted to build themselves essentially a city that was far away from anybody else as they could possibly um, get. And they wanted to have it be a place that was completely out of reach to show all the people in that time period how great they were. It was like an eagle's nest. Eagles can do this. Eagles will essentially take and build their nest not on the regular ground, but they will put it way up high in the sky so it's out of reach of anybody who would be a potential threat to them. So when the Bible says to set his nest on high, I think of the eagles <clears throat> to be safe or out of reach from harm. Now, it doesn't matter how far those people who have intimidated other peoples and stolen their goods go to self-indulge themselves God finds them. So the second woe is to those who use all those resources to build up themselves. He says, you, Babylon, have done this. The Chaldeans, you've done this. You've essentially stolen all these goods for your own promotions. You're only in it for yourself. To be slow to the application, because I'm, I'm going to get ahead of myself here, the application for us is, why do I read this book? And let me tell you something, this week I had to go back and I had to really think about that question. Do I read this in the cultural context of our day to gain something out of it? Do I look at my Bible and say, Jesus, what's in it for Jordan? 
Or do I look at it in the text and what it says, and I say, Jesus, what am I supposed to do for you and for your glory? Have you ever read the Bible that way? The woe was to not self-indulge. I mean, I could think about it in all the contexts. Why do I go to a Bible study? Why do I pray with my brothers and sisters? You know, I spend time eating lunch and dinner with lots of people. And I always say before we, we eat, I say, hey, let's pray. And I think to myself, I hope this is a seven or an eight or a nine. And they see how holy I am. Right? Have you ever done that? Now I know what you guys are thinking when I ask you to pray, right? You're thinking, well, hold on, the pastor's sitting across from me. Oh, my word. You're praying before you even started praying. <laughs> Dear Jesus, help me not to sound like an idiot in front of Pastor Jordan. <laughs> Pastor Jordan's saying, Dear Jesus, please help me not to sound like an idiot in front of these people, right? Hey, think how ridiculous that is. And think about Jesus, who is the author and creator of humor, who sits up there and goes, what are you do it. Just say thanks for the food and eat. Seriously. Look at this. He says, 10, the Babylonians have devised shame for your house by cutting off many people. He fortified your life. He says in verse 10 that you have constructed what we call a weak foundation. You've constructed a house based off a weak foundation. 11, the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork will respond. Essentially, he says, the house that you have created, Babylon, on high that is for yourself, those things that are from the Lord will cry out and say, this isn't right. This isn't how things should be. We're not supposed to be here. We are supposed to be used for God's glory, not for man's glory. All the resources that we have in this world, essentially, is what he's saying, are not to build up yourself. They're to be used as tools for God's glory so that those who are lost can become found and those who are saved can be encouraged. That's what he says. Woe to you who self-indulge. Woe to us who do those things. Woe to us. And may we pause and reflect when every time we enter into this text to say, God, what is it that you are asking me to do, not what am I gaining out of this relationship? Can you imagine how different every single relationship would be in the context of this world if we entered into every single relationship and said, what can I give to this relationship instead of what can I get from it? Now, Bethany's shaking her head again, right? She loves this sermon, all right? What, what could happen? Can you imagine the context of our relationships, our friendships, our marriages, our kids? What would happen if we looked at every single relationship and said, I am not in it for myself. I am here to serve you. Why would I say that? Because the two greatest commandments are, love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. So he says, woe to you who self-indulge. Number three, look at verse 12. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city off iniquity or injustice, he would say. Now, what happened with Babylon was they would essentially take all these people uh, who they had plundered and they would make them slaves. And that's where we get into verse 13. He says, behold, that's not from the Lord of hosts that people labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing. He says, why in the world would we take people and make them slaves so that you can be promoted in yourself? That is injustice. And so the first uh, woe was that it was a woe to intimidate. Then you have self-indulge. The third one is woe to those who love this injustice. The Babylonians were people who loved injustice. They would 
force people into slavery to work for them so that they would be promoted and not God would be promoted. <laughs> Some of you are looking at me and like, Jordan, that's my boss. Anyway, that's not what we're talking about today. He says, Babylon will be built on the blood of slaves. There will be much injustice there. And so in verse 13, verse 13 excuse me, it says, that's not from the Lord. You are building an altar for yourself in which you will be sacrificed on, is what he's telling them. He says, Babylon, you need to understand that in all of your endeavors to plunder the people and to oppress them, to make them slaves, to put them into forced labor so that you will be built up, you are an unjust people and you are building an altar for yourself in which you will be sacrificed on. Now, he tells them in verse 14, Habakkuk says, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as waters cover the sea as waters cover the sea. The command was that you shouldn't love injustice, but that you should love justice. And so if the people were reading that, they would have been reminded about Noah. You know the story of Noah, right? Noah was commanded by God to build a boat. There's a kid's song about it. It's phenomenal. And it goes through the whole entire text of Scripture. Noah, though, what you might not have known, when God told Noah to build a boat, he said, Noah, I want you to build this huge vessel. Rains will come down from the heavens, and I will flood the earth. Now, what's amazing in the context of that Scripture is nobody knew what rain was. They had no idea. It never happened. When he said it was going to rain, Noah would have had a question mark over his head. He's going to be like, hold on a second. Isn't the vegetation that's on the earth and the plant life, that's watered from below? The Bible tells us that springs would come up from below and it would water the earth that way. There was no need for rain. And so Moses, or no, not, not Moses, Noah, okay, essentially makes a claim that he is going to follow God by, anyone know? Faith. He's going to believe that God is going to do a great work. So he goes and he makes his boat. And you know what happens when Noah makes his boat? All of a sudden, everybody looks at him and they say, Noah, have you gone crazy? I don't know what's wrong with you, but you're telling us that the rains are going to come down and the floods are going to come up and you're building this boat and you want us to get in this boat with you. We don't think that's such a good idea. And Noah continues to be faithful to the Lord. He's obedient to him, but he's also a prophet, if you will, speaking about what will happen from the Lord. And he tells the people, repent for the time is coming where God will wipe out all of humanity except for me and my family from the face of this earth. He says, the waters will rise and cover the earth like the sea. And all of a sudden, as we know, because this is scriptural, the rains came down and the... You guys went to Sunday school when you were kids. You should come back, by the way. Anyway, <clears throat> um, so the rains came down and the floods came up, right? And the walls came tumbling down. That's Jericho. Anyway, <clears throat> so all of a sudden the waters come up and uh, you mix songs sometimes, and the people start pounding on the boat because the waters start to come up on the boat. And all of a sudden, the people look at uh, Moses, or not Moses, Noah, and they say, Noah, let us in the boat. Like, uh, we have a problem. Well, there is a problem. God had closed the door of the ark, and he doesn't open that door again. And so since God had closed that door, Noah and his family could hear the cries of the people. And no doubt, they probably pushed their ear to that wood that cried out, if you go back from the walls. 
and the beams from the woodwork responded. This isn't how it should be. And the people said, Noah, let us in, let us in. The waters are rising, and, and it's true there's rain, but that time was too late because God had welcomed them, but now his wrath was being stored up and his hands had dropped. And so the command for Noah, the command for Habakkuk is the same command for us. He says you should love God's justice and you should preach this message to those who are lost, that the earth someday will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God that the earth someday will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God, which those who speculate and look at and say this whole thing was a fraud will be filled with the fact that God was right and they were wrong and that his hand was open to them. And my question is, for those of you who are in relational circles, have you told people that great message? But I'll be ridiculed, but I'll lose friendships. I could lose my job, Jordan. Just as the waters cover the sea. So the knowledge of God will come. And we welcome people to that. And it's their choice. The justice of God comes and he says, woe to those who love injustice. It is a great injustice to fail to communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ to somebody who needs to hear it the most. That is the biggest disservice that we do to our people who are in our lives. The biggest injustice is when we fail to tell them the good news of Jesus. The second big disservice we do is fail to live out that gospel. Man, that breaks my heart. It, it breaks my heart because sometimes I will talk to somebody and I will lay out clearly the gospel of Jesus Christ and I'll say, have you ever heard this message? And they'll say, Jordan, you know what? I've never heard it. No, and I know people in their life who are Christians and I could go but on that side. I'll cry. I don't want to do that today. 15, so <clears throat> woe to those who love injustice, okay? Do we love God's justice so much that we're willing to communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ. 15, the fourth woe. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. This is funny to me. I hope you find the humor in it. You pour out your wrath. It's funny, but it's also very serious. So, um, <clears throat> and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. Now, here's what the Babylonians and the Chaldeans is, are doing. And I think Habakkuk is trying to break up his message a little bit so people will listen. Essentially, what he says is the Babylonians and the Chaldeans had gone over to their neighbor and said, hey, do you want to come over to our house? <laughs> I said, yeah, absolutely. And what they did was they got him drunk and they put him on the front lawn and they made fun of him the whole night. That's what the Bible says, okay? He says, <laughs> woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. That's exactly what he's saying. You got them drunk and then you had enter the entertainment for the night was them. And if you're doing this to your neighbors, and some of you are my neighbors, I'm never coming over to your house if you, if you do that, okay? <laughs> he says, you loved to disgrace these people. He says, you disgraced them. That's what you did. You not only plundered all of their stuff, you not only intimidated them, you not only wanted, we're in this for yourself, you not only in love, uh, love injustice, you love to disgrace people, to make them look foolish, to make them look ridiculous. He says, you love to do these things. Look at what he says in 16. You're going to have your fill of shame instead of glory. You drink yourself, go ahead and show your uncircumcision. In other words, with that uncircumcision, he says, show yourself not a believer in the true God. The cup of the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. You see what he says there? He says that essentially there's two cups in which we choose to drink. 
And this happens in every context and every relationship that we have. We either choose in every single relationship that we are a part of to glorify ourselves or to be in that relationship for the other person. It goes back to what we just talked about. We either choose to drink the cup of ourselves and see that other person's disgrace because we're promoted and they're demoted, or we choose to let God's cup come and have his righteousness be restored. That's what he's saying. He says, look, you have two cups. If you choose to drink this cup of yourself, essentially you will at one point drink the cup of the Lord, which is his wrath, which comes for those who love to disgrace other people. And so my question on the table is, after reading that, how do I view other people? Do I view them as opportunities to grow in their relationship with Jesus Christ? Or do I view them as people to simply pick at so that I don't see my own insecurities and so that I don't see my own shortcomings? Because oftentimes, we love to disgrace people because it shows us what we lack in ourselves. Oh, look at Karen. Uh, we won't go into examples because you know them already. I don't have to go down that road. All right. He says in 17, the violence done to Lebanon will over Whelm you. What is he talking about there? I circled the word Lebanon because Lebanon's important. The Chaldeans or the Babylonians had gone into Lebanon, one of the cities in which they had plundered. They'd taken all of their stuff and all of their resources. Lebanon was known to have big, thick trees, and their wildlife was incredible. It's the best zoo in the whole entire Old Testament. And what they did was they took all those animals and they put them in cages. The violence, not really, I'm being facetious. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to the cities and all who dwell in it. What he says, first of all, to the Babylonians is, those things in which you thought were going to be good for yourself will eventually in turn be your downfall. And the context for us as Christians is, those people who you disgrace at some point might have the opportunity to turn those tables upon you. And he says, woe to you who love to disgrace other people because there will come a time to where they will disgrace you. But Jordan, I thought when I go to heaven, I've confessed and believed in Jesus. I mean, that means that I get to go into heaven. Yeah, absolutely, it does. If you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord, you will be, as the Bible says, saved. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and it's by faith that we trust in God. And so we ask that for that redemption to come through the blood of Jesus Christ. But when we get to heaven, God will ask us two questions. One, why should I let you in? Any other answer besides the fact that I trust in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior will not get you through those doors. The first question you answer that, you say, you know what? I trusted in you and you alone. And God knows the status of your heart. He knows if you're lying and he knows if you're telling the truth. He knows when you've been good and bad. He's not saying, I'm just kidding. He says, he says, you got it. And you'll walk through those doors. And you'll see the glory of God in all of its splendor. And then you'll feel a little tap on your back. And you'll turn around and there will be Jesus. And he'll look at you and he'll say, I want to ask you a second question. What did you do with my son? What did you do with the gospel message of Jesus Christ? Did you disgrace other people because of that message? Or did you willingly give them the opportunity to come through the same doors in which I allowed you to come in? Remember how we talked about last week that the status of life, that God loves life, all lives? It's easy to look at people and ridicule them and disgrace them, but it's more difficult to welcome them into the kingdom of God. And that's what he says. Woe to you who love to disgrace individuals. Woe to you who look down on people as if they shouldn't receive the same gospel that you have received. That's hard. 
And let me tell you something, I've debated that a lot in my life, and I've seen the error of a lot of ways that I've done that. I've bypassed one person or two people or three people because, you know what, I looked at them and I'm like, I don't think they get to receive the same grace that I receive. And let me tell you what, God is waiting on the other end of that train, and you do not want to know what's in those cars. (laughs) He says, woe to you who love to disgrace. Everybody gets a shot at this. And so watch this. He essentially says, whom will you now serve? Verse 18, what profit is it? Okay, all of this to say, all of this to be revealed, everything that he has just talked about in chapter two. He says, Babylon and the Chaldeans, knowing all of these things, Habakkuk, knowing all of these things, you've asked me great questions, I've given you some great answers, God says. Knowing all of these things, if you were to serve yourself, he says in verse 18, what prophet is an idol? That's what you've made when you're intimidating, self-indulging, lover of injustice, love to disgrace. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it, a metal image and a teacher of lies? For its maker trusts in his own creation. That's what Babylon had done. That's what we do when we turn from the ways of the Lord. When he makes a speechless idol, here's the fifth woe. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, and to cast a silent stone, arise. Now pause for a second. This is what people did in the Old Testament. I'm going to try not to give this away, but I'm studying Daniel right now because we're going to preach Daniel in, uh, in like about a month. Daniel's a fascinating book. I'm excited. Like it was hard to come in and be like, let's not finish the back. Let's go right there. But we've got to finish the back. And then Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar builds himself an altar. And essentially he builds himself like in chapter three, he builds this, um, this crazy statue. And he says, all of the people should worship this statue. And we look at it and we think, man, Nebuchadnezzar's kind of a cocky guy. Like, why would he say that? Like, why would he be so arrogant to build himself a statue? He's doing what he knows. Because in the Old Testament, all the kings in the nations who didn't worship God essentially established or set up altars for themselves in which they had to worship. It was their way of essentially marking their territory. So if you kind of walked in, it would be like Bremen had an idol and Wyatt had an idol and South Bend had an idol. It's called Notre Dame. And Mishawaka has an idol. I didn't say, did I say I didn't mean to say that a lot. All right. <clears throat> Kentucky has an idol. I'm a Kentucky fan. All right. So he says all of these places that essentially built their idols, right? <clears throat> and so what Nebuchadnezzar does was he builds an idol. And that's what's happening here with the Babylonians and the Chaldeans. They're just doing what everybody else is doing, which is the problem. That's what happens in the problem with Christianity. When we do what everybody else is doing, we don't do glory to God, we do glory to ourselves. We build our own altar. And so he says, the Babylonians or the Chaldeans had built this idol for themselves, and he says, for its maker, them, trusted in their own creation when he makes a speechless idol. Woe to that person. So he says, woe to those who love idolatry. It continues. Uh, 19, second half. Can that idol teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath in that thing whatsoever. Go back and look at all of those woes. And those who intimidate, those that self-indulge, those who love injustice, those that love to disgrace, they are worshiping themselves. And he says, can you teach yourself? I'm reminded of the story in the New Testament. You know where the guy's reading scripture, and all of a sudden the guy gets off of his wagon, and he says, he says what are you reading? And he says, oh, I'm reading from one of the book of the prophets. He says, can you understand it? He says, how can I understand these things unless somebody teaches me them? And somebody tells me about it. Somebody instructs me in those ways of what the word says. 
And so he starts to instruct them, and long story short, in that passage of scripture, he comes to know the Lord. He confesses with his mouth, believes in his heart, and he's baptized. He's saved, right? He's baptized in the water as a profession of the faith in which he declared. And so what happens here in the text is what he's saying <clears throat> in, that, in that part, in that overlaid with gold and silver, there's no breath in it at all. He says, if you're building that which is for yourself, it cannot teach you the ways that you need to be taught. Only God can do that. It goes back all the way to when man walked in the garden with God. When Adam was created, he walked with God, he talked with him, he had fellowship with him, and God instructed him on the ways in which he should go. He showed him the ways he should go. Not that he should serve himself and worship himself, that he should serve the living God. The king of kings. Look at this in verse 20. The Lord is in his holy temple, and so let all the earth keep silent before him. He's essentially asking, what do you worship? Do you worship yourself or do you worship your Savior? And you could go back into all five of those areas and you could see specific spots in your life, if you were to be honest, about the ways in which you are serving yourself and what needs to be corrected and to serve your Savior. There's a story in the Old Testament about the prophet Elijah. We'll close with this. I think it's an amazing story because what happens is all the people are questioning what Elijah is saying. They're looking at him and they're saying, Elijah, you preach about Jesus every week. Matter of fact, you're in our towns, you're in our villages, you come, you come here all the time. Every day you stand up and you talk about Jesus. That's all you talk about is God, 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 God this, God that, God this, God that. They said, let's have a competition, some healthy competition. All the people said, we have this other God that we have constructed. His name is Baal and we think he is awesome. And so what we're going to do is we're going to build two altars. You go ahead and you build your altar, and we'll come over here and we'll build our altar. And what happens is the first person that that altar sets fire, like the fire comes out of that altar, wins the competition. <laughs> Elijah's like, all right, game on, let's do it. He's like, you go build your altar, I'm going to build my altar. He says, I'm going to up the ante a little bit. He's going to let him peek underneath the engine, if you will, to get a little peek at what's, what's underneath the hood. And he says, you come over here to my altar after I have built it, and you can douse it with as much water as you want. Get the hoses, I mean, get your kids over here, the water balloons, whatever you got to do. He says, douse my whole entire altar with water. And, he said, and they're like, all right. And he's like, you can make yours as dry as you want. So they dump all this water on, on his altar. And all of a sudden, these people are running around like chickens with their heads cut off. Go read the story. It's crazy. They start cutting themselves. I mean, they're dancing around this thing. They're doing weird stuff, saying weird things. Elijah's over here kind of like scratching his head like, are you guys okay? You know? And so they're running around and all of a sudden they're praying to this, this other God, which is something they've created for themselves. And so all of a sudden, Elijah has enough of it. And he looks over and he says, God, uh, maker of heaven and the earth, light it up. He says, let's give them a show that they'll never forget. And all of a sudden, <laughs> right? And the people are dumbfounded. They're like, wait a second. We thought our God was greater. And Elijah says, my God is greater than any other God that you could construct or create. How did he know? How did he know? Because he had faith. Because he believed that his God was greater and his God could do amazing things. Do you have that same kind of faith? I mean, when you look at all of these things, do you have that same kind of faith that Habakkuk had? At the end of the conversation and the dialogue, and this is just the, just the start of next week, and this is why it's hard sometimes to stop preaching, because with all of this ammunition that Habakkuk has, God looks at him, he says, knowing these things, knowing that it is not about you, 
that you're not commanded to intimidate, knowing that it's not about yourself, knowing that it's about God's justice, knowing that it's about not disgracing others, but serving me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. I've given you all these things as a reason to know how to praise. That's what Habakkuk chapter 3 is all about. Why should I praise the Lord? How do I do it? And he tells him. And you come next week and I'll tell you exactly what he says. Let me pray for you. Dear Lord, there's so many things that you're speaking to your people here in this place that I can't, that I can't say. Because you're working on our hearts and you're, and you're, you're, you're pushing us to conform us more to your image. And so God, <clears throat> um, I pray in my prayer in, in this sermon this morning with all the texts that we have presented that we would evaluate all of these things in our own lives. The overarching thing, God, that we need to evaluate is do we really have a relationship with you? And I want you to think about that in the quietness of this sanctuary this morning. Evaluate where you are in your relationship with Jesus. Have you made the decision to confess with your mouth, believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord? Have you really truly made that decision? Do you believe in your heart? Nobody else can say that you do or that you don't. You know it more than anybody else. Do you believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sin? Do you believe that you even have sin? The Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, who came not as a condemnation, but came as that which is seeking to save us who are lost. Jesus Christ, being God's son, lived a perfect life. He was 100% God, 100% man, died on the cross for our sins, didn't stay dead, rose again, so that you would have the opportunity to place your faith and your trust in him. The Bible tells us it is by grace, unmerited favor. God looked upon you and he loved you and he said, I want a relationship with you. He's offering it to you like a free gift, but you have to receive that free gift. Have you received the free gift of Jesus Christ? How do I do that? The Bible tells us you confess with your mouth. Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. Believe in your heart. God, you're my savior. You will be saved. The Bible tells us that Jesus came to seek and to save that which is lost. Have you made that decision? Have you followed Jesus Christ? Make that decision today. Don't wait. Don't waver. Don't put it off until tomorrow. Because we don't know when those hands that God offers to us drop. And those of us who have called upon the name of the Lord, God, would you do an amazing work in our lives here this morning and help us to evaluate all the areas that we have talked about all of those five woes that you have called us to pause, hit the yellow light, and reflect on, to look at and evaluate in our own life. Lord, do we do these things? Do we intimidate others? Do we have a demeanor that intimidates other people? Do we have, uh, have we gained up things for our own self? Have we done that, God? Have we done these things so that we can intimidate other people? Do we love injustice? Do we love when people get what they deserve? Do we love when people get what they deserve to disgrace them and to push them deeper, those people who are in our lives? Do we love to make them look like fools? Or do we cover them in what your word says? And what are the idols, God, that we have constructed in our own life? And Christian brother and sister who's standing or sitting here in this place. What is the idol that you have constructed? Is it yourself? 
Is it maybe something that you own? What is most important to you? That if I took it away, you wouldn't know how to live without it. That's an idol. What is the one thing that you place above anything else? If that is not the Lord Jesus Christ, we are off. And we need him to come and to restore us. Lord God, give us Jesus. Help us to see that he is all we need. Help us not to wander or weary. Help us, God, to understand how important that is. That you've given us a gift, which is yourself. And to not look at your word of what we get out of that relationship, but what we can give to it. There's so many reasons to praise God. We love you so, so, so much. I love you so much. I thank you for so many of the truths that are in Habakkuk, that even that you hear our prayers is amazing to me. Be with your people this week. Don't let them leave here discouraged. Let them leave here encouraged, knowing that it is possible to lean on your understanding that you are with us, you're for us. When our hearts are soft and our lives are moldable, teach us and train us, God. May you be our instruction. If you believe that, amen, right? Amen. Thank you for listening to the Community Gospel Church Podcast. If you would like to support this ministry financially, simply log on to communitygospelchurch.com and click the Contribute tab.